comfort for my people says you've got. Speak happy to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare is there, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert and the highway for our, our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain, and the rugged terrain of our God. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is like is grass, and all its loveliness is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead. Wow. Great section. We can divide this clearly into four parts where, where a voice of some sort is crying forth. And the first cry is the commission God gives Isaiah here to comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. No sooner has Isaiah spoken the words of disaster that God commissions him to give a message of comfort and hope, a dramatic shift of direction from chapter 39 down to chapter 40. And from here on out, the keynote of the rest of Isaiah is this message of comfort, this message of hope. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended. That this battle that God has against her, the punishment that he's bringing upon her, is over. That, that her iniquity, her, her sins have been removed. That she has received from the Lord the ample punishment for her sins. Um, so this is great, a great message of comfort. Now, look with me for a moment at Lamentations chapter 1, which is what Jeremiah wrote right after Jerusalem was taken. Lamentation chapter 1, verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. Lamentation chapter 1, verse 9, the middle, she has no comforter. Lamentations 1, verse 16, the, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. In 17, Zion stretches out her hands, there's no one to comfort her. In uh, 21, um, they have heard that I groan, there's no one to comfort me. The theme of lamentation, there's no comfort. They are taken into captivity and it looks hopeless and helpless and there's no one to comfort. But Isaiah's words ring out. God's mission for him, comfort my people. Tell her that the time of punishment has passed. That God is going to bless her again. So that's the, the, the beginning cry of this section of Isaiah. Words of comfort for God's people. Comments and questions on one and two. All right, then in three, a voice calls forth. And this voice has a wonderful message. But you won't understand the message until you stop and think about the situation that the exiles faced in captivity. Do you remember Ezekiel 8 through 11? Right before Jerusalem fell to Babylon, 
What happened in Ezekiel 8 through 11 that was extremely significant? God moved out of the Holy of Holies, out of the temple, out of the city of Jerusalem, out of the nation of Israel. God moved away. Their sins did not allow him to continue to reside among them. And now a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. He's coming back. Get the highway ready for him. The focus here is not on the exiles returning. It's on God's coming back. That's the wonderful message for them. And, uh, well, what are you going to have to do to do that? Will you make smooth the highway? You lift up the valleys? You bring the mountains and the hill low? You smooth out the rough ground? And make it a broad valley? And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Wow! Can you imagine what would have to happen for the way to be prepared for the Lord to come back to his people? Now, when he talks about filling in the valleys, bringing down the mountains, and smoothing out the highway, is he speaking of physical changes that are going to have to take place in the, uh, in the uh, interstate network in, in Israel? What's he talking about? Changes in people's hearts. Absolutely. The nation needs to remove all spiritual barriers that might hinder the coming of their God. They've got to prepare for God to come back uh, by repentance. Uh, the desert might represent the barrenness of their lives. The hills might represent their pride, the valleys, their hopelessness and self-pity. And all of that has to be changed. As the Lord is going to come and reveal His glory. How do you know this is really going to happen? Amen. That is sufficient. You need nothing else. That guarantees it. God said it's going to happen. And the ability of God to fulfill his word is a great theme of the following chapters. If God speaks it, it'll happen. The wonderful message he's calling out is get your lives prepared. God's coming back. Now do you recognize those words? They're applied in the New Testament to who? The word of John. In preparing the people for the coming of Jesus. The Lord. <laughs> Jesus. As all flesh saw his glory, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that exactly what happens in the coming of Christ? So I think very properly these words are applied to the work of John in getting the people ready for the Lord to come back and dwell among his people. Comments and questions through verse 5? Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, the mountain, the valley, the rough ground, all those things would seem to be pretty big obstacles that would set in the way of the Lord um, um, putting, putting his will in effect. And, you know, with the comparison to Christ, the inherent and the slaughter of the babies, you had just everything was going against Mary and Joseph and in the beginning but the angel came. I mean, there's all these obstacles, but no matter how big they may seem, it's as if they're not even there. Yes, and I think much more broadly, there's all the obstacles in the people as a whole. Their pride, and their their selfishness, and their wickedness, and their their failure to have spiritual perception, and all of that sort of thing. I mean, you've just got the whole nation practically not in tune with the Lord. There's got to be a lot of renovation done to get the way ready for the Lord to come back. And uh, that's exactly what He's exhorting the people to do: get your lives ready, because the Lord is coming. Other thoughts? In 6, a voice says, call out. So you've got another voice calling out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? And he calls out what? 
Flesh is grass. All flesh is grass. What does that mean? Withers in the sun. Yes. Men are so transient. They're so irrelevant. I mean, grass. Grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, you wouldn't take, wouldn't take much breath for God to just wither up the grass. I mean, a little dry spell will do it. He said that's the way man is. Humanity cannot save itself. It can't hinder God's plan of salvation. You know, there's just, man is so, so lightweight. He's so empty. The grass withers. The flower fades. What's the contrast to that? Amen. The word of God stands forever. It is steadfast. It is reliable. It is everything that all flesh is not. All flesh is impermanent and, 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 and does practically nothing. There's no substance to, to man. But there is every depth and consistency and, and permanence in God's holy word. After all, God's word comes from what? Ultimately it comes from God. His word comes out of his mouth. It has the same character God has. It is a shame when in our uh, postmodern era, the words of God are marginalized. Because these are God's words. When you rely on the word of God, that is not some, you know, antiquated superstition. That is trust in the one who has absolutely proven himself to be trustworthy. God's word is every bit as abiding and powerful as the Lord himself. If his word managed to create the universe, it is trustworthy. Man is not. Now where do we stand on that? Do we listen to man? Or do we rely completely on every single word that has come out of God's mouth? That's a really powerful passage. And do you, do you recognize that passage from its New Testament use? Where is that? First Peter 1, yes. It's the same point that he makes in First Peter 1. He says, this is the word that I've spoken to you. All right, comments or questions through verse 8. Somebody said uh, the word of God does not have an expiration date. You're right. I think a lot of people think that, you know, it was applicable back then, at day is day, but it's not applicable to us. No, the word of God stands forever. It doesn't have an expiration date. Yeah, and to think that it does is to think that God himself is old and, you know, has passed away or whatever. If we have any faith in the Lord, then his word is every bit as permanent as he said it. And we're just in an era where people don't believe that. And, you know, where we need to be challenged by these passages to recommit ourselves to the absolute reliability of everything God has said. Amen. Other thoughts on that section? And then, get yourself up on a high mountain, verse 9. O Zion, bearer of good news. And they're supposed to cry out and boldly declare to the cities of Judah. And what, are, what is Zion supposed to declare to the cities around her? Amen. Isn't that exactly what we need to be doing to the people around us? Boldly declaring from a high mountain, here is your God. That's exactly the message we need to bring. And that's our responsibility. And sometimes we are will fall way short of making the declaration to others about who God is like we ought to. It ought to be that when Christians are in a place that people have heard about God, they may have rejected it, 
But they can't say they didn't have the opportunity. Amen. He says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might. Now, when God wants to deliver his people, he doesn't do it the way our leaders do. You know, I, I'm not at the moment trying to make any sort of political statement about our future president. But when Obama is going to solve our economic crisis, what's he planning on doing? He's planning on coming and solving it for us? What's he planning on doing? Getting a bunch of good minds together and devising a plan and implementing a plan. A plan, a program, something. You don't expect Obama to come and and personally, you know, supplement your wallet or or you know resolve your problem. When the presidents, whichever one they they are, the the most they'll do is try to have some sort of program. Well, God doesn't just send us a program. The Lord God will come with might. Isn't that exactly what has happened? What did God send? Did he just send some sort of instruction manual? Did you just send some kind of a uh, some kind of a, a, a plan? He sent himself. He came himself with his arm. His arm ruling for him. Now, you think about the arm of God ruling. You think about the powerful warrior arm of God. But then look at verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That's such a beautiful picture of God. The strong arm of military might and the gentle arm of holding his lambs close in tenderness and comfort. God is the God of toughness and gentleness. He, he's able to do anything he chooses to do with his strong arm. But he's a model of compassion and concern for every one of his sheep. When the Lord comes, he comes with his arm. The arm of a warrior the arm of a shepherd. That's a beautiful picture. Oh, we see this in Psalm 18. Uh, he's talking about how he will destroy the wicked. It's amazing the words that he uses. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of the nostrils, the fire from his mouth, the devoured coals were kindled by it, and so on and so forth. And it goes on and just this descriptive language about what he will do and then what he did for David because he was pure at heart. Um, he says, he brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Earlier, uh, he sent me from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters and such. And it's amazing to see uh, the, the contrast between the two. It's, it's, it really, like you said, it really is a beautiful picture. It is. You know, God moves heaven and earth to rescue one half-drowned man from the flood. That's exactly what you see in Psalm 18. And, uh, you know, you so often can imagine a tough ruler who's very unfeeling. You can imagine a gentle, compassionate ruler who's not got strength or gumption enough to do anything. We've got this Powerful, gentle It's just everything we need. And it reminds me, uh, I did read the book, it wasn't nearly as good as the title, but the title for a book about husbands, men of steel and velvet. It's a great idea. The idea of the steel is, man, you can't bend it, you can't budge it. But velvet covers the steel. And he's just, you know, so... Uh, not abrasive in his relationship with others, even though he's that tough, strong, unbending framework. That's God. That's exactly the way God is. Comments and thoughts on that. 
Then over the first part of chapter 40 here, when it's talking about to prepare um, yourselves for God to come back into you. Don't really speak to yourselves, but to your hearts. I think many times we need to prepare ourselves um, in, our, in our modern day lives. Because I think many times we think that, oh, stomach baptized and dug in water, then God's with me always. And I think we need to be very careful that when we either pray with God or we come together like this for Bible study or go to worship, that we prepare our minds to worship our Creator. We prepare our, our lives. Um, because as we talked about in Isaiah 1 last year, God hates worship with hypocrisy. When your life, when your life is, is, is full of uh, filthiness, then God just despises worship or despises um, offerings or whatever you're trying to do for him. So we need to make sure our lives is prepared um, in, in our modern day lives. Amen. Amen. Think about then this initial section of, of, of proclamations and how good the news is. In 1 and 2, Jerusalem's warfare has ended. In 3 to 5, God is coming. In 6 to 8, the word of the Lord can be trusted. And in 9 through 11, our powerful God is our gentle shepherd. Aren't those wonderful messages of great comfort to begin this whole section of Isaiah? Anything you want to say to verse 11? Seth? Two things. What we were talking about turning around, where he was showing all of his goods. Um, you know, when, when two men today introduce themselves, meeting for the first time, the first question they ask each other is, "What do you do?" And I mean, that's how you set your status. That's what you. That's who you are. Um, whereas, you know, it, like in verse nine, what we're saying, "Oh, Israel, here is your God." Our, our answer isn't necessarily, you know. To the question, who are you? It shouldn't be, well, I'm this. I know. The answer should be, I'm a Christian. That's what I do. So we see what God does. Yes. Yes, Tim. You just got to repeat those summaries of the verse. Oh, yeah. Uh, one and two, Jerusalem's warfare is ended. Three to five, the Lord is coming. Six to eight, the word of the Lord can be trusted. And 9 through 11, our mighty God is our gentle shepherd. There's nothing magical about those terms, which is basically saying what it says. John. I think when we read the Bible, sometimes we can emphasize different things, the gentleness of God or the wrath of God, and we can highlight those and emulate those things, but we see God as a balanced God. And that's the hardest part of Christianity right there, just having all these things mixed together and not being too, too emphatic in one area or the other. Yes, good point. That is tough. Alright, anything else? Okay. Um, there are some things that can be said about the structure of this next section, I think we can probably organize it in more than one way. I'm going to just organize it in a very simple way, even though you might see some things that are more complex. I'm not sure I see a lot of benefit in, in some of the greater complexity. Um, so I'm just going to try to, to see it kind of a step at a time. 12 to 14. Who has mended the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked up the heavens by the sand, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the king of the Lord, or, at, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him the knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? to assume a good bit of knowledge on your part about these sections, so I'll summarize them fairly quickly. But God here is greater than the created world. He's so immense that he deals with the universe in the same way you deal with a minute, trivial object. He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. It's like God got some water and he said, now, this will be the Atlantic. And he got some more and he said, now, this will be the Indian and so forth and so on. 
You know, he's just enormous. You know, he marks off the heavens with the span. And that, that forms the distance of, from one planet to the other or whatever. He, 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 he takes all the dust of the, the earth and, and he calculates it by measure. He weighs the mountains and the hills by scales. <laughs> you know, God is so enormous that all he had to do for the, you know, Mount Everest is just to put it on his scale and get the, the you know, weight just right and all that sort of thing. And when God did that, what engineer did he consult with? What engineering firm did he retain to uh, help him with the calculations? Uh, God is self-sufficient. He is independent. And he was able in such easy ways to create the universe. He's amazing. Comments and questions? Online, I think it's like he calculated the 343.1 quintillion gallons of water on the surface. Just kind of amazing. Sounds that. like something he would have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other comments. You know, when you think about the hollow of your hand, I mean, if you take out your hand and pour some water, most of it just runs through your fingers, and all that's left is maybe three or four drops just there in the center and that's you know you, you compare that to God's hand holding the ocean so, amazing pretty amazing are like a drop from a bucket or like a speck of dust on the scales. Ever go to the deli? Buy some, you know, shaved ham or something that way. A little bit of cheese. You know, you want a half a pound of this or whatever. And, and the, uh, the deli person there, you know, puts this quantity and it, you know, comes up with that electronic gizmo, you know, 0.51 pounds or whatever. So the do you ever say, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to have to find it. There is a speck of dust on that scale. <laughs> you know, you're weighing that dust, too. You know, so I'm not getting my full amount. <laughs> you know, <laughs> ever heard anybody do that? You were in the devil. You know, the nations, the empire, <laughs> a speck of dust on God's scale. Now, think about how God's people, how the Jews, saw these superpower nations. And they are truly nothing before God. 
He said, if you could take Lebanon, remember the cedars of Lebanon as the fuel, the country is the altar, all the animals in Lebanon as the sacrifice, eh, that wouldn't be It's not a big enough altar, it's not enough fuel, not enough animals to honor God the way he deserves to be honored. <laughs> so there's nothing we can really do to be equal to God. Comments and thoughts? Thinking about that, the Commonwealth does kind of like weaken, but that's, you know, dust is nothing to us except all the you know. But in that way, the nations are nothing to God except knowing, you know. He says earlier, you know, stop regarding man. You know, what is man? What has he done? You know, it's kind of probably the only thing that the nations are to God is annoying because they rejected him, you know. You're right. I think when we look at it as uh, from our perspective today, the nations, you know, we think about the United States or China or India or Russia, you know, all these great nations, uh, but they're nothing. They're less than nothing and worthless. And then, as she said earlier, you know, you take us compared to the nation, us compared to the United States, we're less than less than nothing. That's. It feels kind of uh, insignificant, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And we are. Roger. Yeah, it's funny how we sometimes have to try to be impressive and try to be cool. And you know, to God, you know, <laughs> nobody's impressive. Nobody's really that cool. To somebody who created the earth who says great. So, you know, we have to have great humility before this great God. Amen. Tim. Um, it's kind of like sometimes you're a lion, um, you're a city. Occasionally, fly from New York and go up all the path before you land. And then and you, you look at this uh, city and it's, it's dark, and there's all these uh, buildings that got, I think, lights on on the window. Not every single window is lit, but there's just a whole bunch of these you know, specks of light in the building. And then you think that in every single one of those lights, somebody doing something that has the light of being significant to yours. And, it's just, and you'll be thinking about some cars. And, when you're up there, from like how many feet, and it still blows your mind. It's just such a small part. Good point. Other thoughts? 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. So, God is greater than the idols. The only thing you have to do to realize that is just describe the manufacturing process of the idol that you're bowing down to and trusting in. Who's going to have to work on the idol that you're making? A man. A man. Craftsman, goldsmith, silversmith. And, and, you know, they've got to do it the right way. I mean, you know, you select a tree that doesn't rot. You know, it stinks to have your God rot out quickly. You know, you don't want that. And if, if the craftsman does his work skillfully and he gets done, your idol won't tower. It won't move. <laughs> that's what you want. That, that's the ideal in I idol. You know, it really it, it hurts morale when your idol topples over. So you want it to be really just, you know, not move. That, that, that's just the sort of the crowning exposure of the stupidity it's designed to be immobile and then you bow down to it you think it's going to deliver you when you when you measure God against the competition whoa there's just no comparison anything you'd like to say about that Yeah. It is a bit of a stretch, but you know, so you talk about God is greater than like in the, in the creative world. He's better than wood, maybe 
out of this. Where are the nations? Where are the people who made Gaggle? And so you combine this and now you get something. The course got straight in that too. Exactly. Stands to reason, doesn't it? We just talked about how you know, insignificant we are, and yet this idol is something that we made. It's not even as great as we are. <laughs> exactly. The created is inferior to the creator, right? I mean, we kind of laugh at someone who would do something in preposterous as this, but we do the same thing with idols in our lives. We might not bow down with our hands to something that we made, but we might bow with our hearts. And we don't recognize that as necessarily worshiping something other than God, but uh, we're pretty, putting our trust in our bank accounts or the connections that we might have. It's really no different. Good point. Whatever we trust in is, becomes our God. Nathan? The question that who we like become, um, you know, nothing. Yeah. If there's nothing we could fashion, there's nothing we could imagine or draw that can even compare to it. You're right. Twenty-one and twenty-four. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent dwelling. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like a I mean, wow, God is just so great. I mean, he's above everything. The inhabitants on the earth, in verse 22, are like grasshoppers. Because he's the God, you know, when he makes the, the, the sky, he just stretches it out like a curtain. You know, I mean, you ever draw the drapes? That's, that's, that's what the Lord does. That, that, that's all it amounted to for him. You know, the rulers, the judges, well, he's much greater than they are. You know, they can plan their strategy and plot their schemes, but the Lord just... Exhales a little hard, they just wither. They just become like tumbleweeds in the storm. You know, don't worry about the power of Babylon for crying out loud. Who are the Babylonians? Before God, they're absolutely nothing. You know, he is he's infinitely greater than world leaders. Comments and thoughts on that. Yeah, but I was going to say, first uh, point two kind of reminds me of um, uh, Christopher Columbus in the uh, late 1400s when he finally discovered that the Earth was round or circular. And in your Isaiah here says it's a circle, and this is what 1500, 2000 years before they discovered that it was circular. So I mean, uh, I don't think they really had any way of knowing in Isaiah's time other than by revelation. Well, you set me up on that one. That's uh, so. I'll, I'll take advantage of that. Uh, I used to make that same argument, but here's a, here's a couple problems with that that I think would be helpful for us because it's not good to make arguments that are easily torn down. When Isaiah makes this statement, I don't think he's trying to reveal something that they didn't know. You know, he's he's speaking just in terms of what they observed, and when we look at the earth we see a certain curvature to it as we look at the horizon or whatever. I suspect that's all he, he, he's trying to say there. I don't think he's trying to reveal some new information that the earth is spherical or whatever. I don't know what they thought about the, uh, you know, geometric uh, shape of the earth at that point. But, but the other thing to say about that is this a poetic statement. This is not, you know, it's not to be taken as in a, in a kind of a, a prosaic sense. If we did that, what do we do with the statements about the four corners of the earth that we have all over the Bible? Well, we'd say, what does it mean by that? 
to, to indicate the, the geometry of the earth. It's, just a, it's a poetic way of describing the, the complete you know, dimensions of the earth. I think that same thing would be true here. When he speaks about sitting above the circle of the earth, I think he just means sitting above the horizon, not that he's trying to define one way or the other what shape the earth is. There's a bunch of those statements. There's a, there's a book that I read when I was probably 20, 22, something like that, that, that had a whole bunch of those. And it, it went through, you know, probably 15 or 20 of the supposedly pre-scientific foreknowledge of God revealed in these passages. But almost always they were attempts to take figurative passages literally, ignoring other figurative passages that were we to take them literally would contradict what we know scientifically. And so I think it's better to keep them in context. Uh, that's just a, you know something I try to debunk when I get an opportunity. So <laughs> anyway, welcome to that. I think that's probably not uh, a valid argument for inspiration. Right, other comments through 24. All right, 25 and 26. To whom then will you like me, and I will be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and mind, see who has created these, these stars. The one who leads forth the host in number, he calls them all by name, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is Okay. God's greater than the stars, you know, and he directs them. Like he, they're almost like they're the, the soldiers in his army that he's commanded. And, and it's just, you know, he's so powerful. He's so incredible. You know, he created the stars. Um, you know, the, that, that verb create is not used a whole lot in the Bible. Uh, and, and used mostly. Or many times in Genesis 1 to 6, and then used a bunch of times in this last part of Isaiah, and only a handful of times elsewhere in the Old Testament. He's the creator. He's the one that controls everything. Um, I I don't remember all the details of this now, uh, but uh, it's just amazing to read about the immensity of the stars in the universe. If I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if you know this, but I think um, that the Earth, or the, our Sun, is one of like uh, 10 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And there's like 10 billion galaxies. And like, excuse me, like the distance across a galaxy is like 100,000 light years. And a light year is nearly 6 trillion miles. And the distance between neighboring galaxies, I think, is like a million light years. I don't know, it's just incredible. You start reading that stuff, it's like, it blows your mind, totally. And that's the part of the universe we've been able to observe so far. You know? And I mean, the, you start talking in terms of those kind of things, and that doesn't have many kind of mental capacity to even battle that. And God directs all that like it was nothing. We serve an incredibly great and awesome God. Thoughts of God. Well, it depends. He's giving you this assurance that for years ahead that God is bound to be overturned. I mean, what greater thing can point to than the stars for them? I mean, it's sort of the crescendo of these arguments, it seems to me. And you think about the fact that it seems to exist in what life is for you. Kind of another argument that it was just such a uh, you know such a pointless matter to try to create something to represent God because God's greater than all these things that we can think of that are great. It would be impossible to create something that would be a little And you know that in the pagan world they looked at the stars and the heavenly bodies as being gods and as having some kind of control over human lives. So there may be even kind of a, a specific point he's making by showing God's superiority to the stars. Other than look. Now we look at how huge the universe is and uh, all the figures that just blow our minds and we look at that all God had to do is he had to speak the world into existence. And that kind of made me think, you know, out of all the great and awesome powerful things that he got to do, 
know, these things would be incredibly good guy, a good force of effort, but we've never seen God have to try very hard to do anything. And that is can cast all the more fear and all the more reverence at him that what would happen if he did. <coughs> yeah, good question. Yeah, well, you know, if God actually exerted himself, wonder what could happen. Alright, 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, to speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not think or grow weird, his understanding is uncertain. He gives power to thank, and to him who has no money, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Those who wait in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be So, the people were complaining that God just wasn't paying any attention, that God was not defending his people. Maybe God had forgotten them, maybe he couldn't see them. You know, because of their, their situation, because of perhaps languishing in captivity or whatever. And he said, don't you know, haven't you heard? God doesn't get tired. He doesn't, he, nothing's ever hidden from him. You know, it, it, it's much different from that. He gives strength to the weary. If you don't have any might, he'll give you power. I mean, God, who is a God of infinite strength and, and perseverance, is the God who can give you the strength you need. A young man can grow weary and tired. It takes longer for a young man to grow weary and tired. But every once in a while, even a young man will grow tired. Vigorous young man sometimes will even stumble badly. You know, it's not easy to get to that point, but it happens. But in contrast with them, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God's power gives to those who trust Him and wait patiently on Him the power to, to be like an eagle in flight, to be like a runner in competition, to be like a hiker on a long track. God gives us the strength and the energy to persevere, to be vibrant and vigorous, and to keep fighting the battle against Satan and keep serving the Lord day after day. We sometimes tend to whip out. It's like, oh, this is too hard. Man, this is just so much of a struggle. I'm just tired. I'm worn out. Well, turn to God. He's got the, the, the power to give us the strength, as he has, never to grow weary and exhausted. Comments and questions? We, we just come through all the things that God has done. Uh, we saw that uh, he, he was greater than what he's created. He was greater than the empires. He was greater than the idols. greater than Babylon. greater than the stars. He's created all of that. But uh, as I said earlier, this kind of just a crescendo to what he's uh, building himself up to. Those things are great and all. The fact is, although he's made all that, he still cares about us even more than he does of those. And it's just... It, like you said, it can't be said enough. We serve an awesome and powerful God. Amen. You know, earlier you were pointing out how chapter 40 is pushed forward, you know, to those who are going to live through the Babylonian captivity. And, you know, verses 1 through 11, the proclamation of comfort. And then verses uh, 12 through 26, you see a reminder of God's ability to deliver that comfort. And then in verse 27, you have a question. You know, of someone seeing, uh, feeling as though God's forgotten them or, or the justice due them had escaped his notice. And I've always seen that as kind of like a, I'm not going to forget, you know, how, how much do I have to do to show you that when I speak comfort, I can bring it to my people? Yes. Good point. Very good point. Shame. I can see this in, I in my life. One of the biggest things for us, I think, is often we feel lonely, feel not alone. 
don't have the strength, we don't have the support that we need. But I think a lot of times when we do get down, um, we, we tend to make it even more possible to be alone because we push everyone that we care about, even the Lord a lot of times away. Um, and I see that in my life, my life a lot of times. When I get down, the times I should be turning to the Lord the most, and the times I feel most lonely are the reason. The reason is because I'm making myself feel lonely. I'm not turning to the Lord. I should be. Um, and I just think that it's so hard sometimes to to make ourselves turn to the Lord, even when we don't feel like it. And where we just point, the Lord is stronger. I just can't help but see that when we fall down, not only will the Lord help us stand up, like He says here, but He can help us fly. He can raise us up higher than we'll ever be. Do we not need to just focus more on God? See His greatness. Recognize who He is. Meditate on these pictures of God. Clearly, then, the one who waits on the Lord and trusts in the Lord and turns to the Lord has an incredible source of strength. You know, I mean, we get to focusing on what? The wind and the waves, and not on the wonderful Savior. You know, that changes everything. You look at the Lord, how could you ever become weary and give up when you see who He is? We quit looking at who He is we look at ourselves and we look at our problems. So I mean, you know, this only inspires us to really look at the Lord. What? The one thing I kept thinking of is uh, while this is, you know, builds our faith up so much and I kept thinking, wow, and everything, I was in awe of everything that, you know, read that God has done and how great He is. But I kept thinking of, why am I not going out and telling others about this God? And that's the one thing I think that I miss out on a lot of times is instead of just thinking, wow, you know, the God that I know, the God that I'm trying to serve is amazing and great. I don't take it a step further sometimes and think I need to go to others about him and about what he can do for them. Good point. Roger. And you know, this is my favorite, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I mean, every time I get tired, and I do know I do get tired, I even go to the thing of fear. So these are some of the passages that energize me uh, and just keep, keep me going because if a God is able to measure the waters in the hollow of his hand, he's able to give me energy. He's able to get me through any tough times that I have. It's just such an encouraging passage. Uh, and I don't know, it's very energetic, very strengthening. Amen. All right. Very good.